All right. I think it's streaming now because two seconds ago it was giving me a weird error. So hopefully this is streaming nicely. Hopefully. I was going to tell you that brains are a weird thing because as I'm sitting here, I had I, I had dinner like 30 minutes prior to going live. It was a big substantial dinner with a roast part of a roast chicken and some, some potatoes and some cauliflower and some carrots. And it was like a big filling warm meal because it's cold as shit outside. And I sit down and I got all my ducks in a row. I got all my buttons sorted. I got all my stuff done. And my brain is like, hey, you know what you want? You want a candy bar right now. Now, there are no candy bars anywhere in this house. I have like zero candy. I think maybe like in one of the, like one drawer somewhere, there's one old as shit York peppermint patty, which is gross as hell. But like... It's really weird how sometimes when you're trying to do one thing, your brain just interrupts with this other idea. And I wonder if that has any sort of applicability to us writing. I wonder if there are times when we're thinking and working on one idea, this other idea, because we're in this sort of free flow creating state and we're just making things and feeling good. This other idea just kind of jumps in because our brain's firing and brain chemicals or brain chemicaling. It's interesting. That might that might be something that shows up on a future podcast in more detail than I'm giving it right now. Tonight, I've got a I've got some amazing questions. It's going to be a really good one. It's going to be a really good night. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you are too. I hope you're enjoying this. Uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're safe. I hope you're warm. And uh, I'm I'm really excited for tonight. This is going to be a good one. All right, let's get started, shall we? All right. Just remember what I've taught you. There we are. Hello. Hi. How are you? How are things? You doing okay? Press that button so it stops making that noise. I hope you're doing all right. This this is a fine and good day to talk some writing, isn't it? This is a great time to sit down and just get better at doing whatever it is you want to do creatively. And it is my pleasure to be here well-fed and happy as I am uh, tonight, right now with you, or I guess today as you're listening to this, because who knows when you're listening to it. My metrics are telling me like some people listen like straight up. Some people listen the next morning. So whenever you're listening to this, hi, how are you doing? I hope you're good. I've missed you. It's nice to see you. You're looking great today. Do something different with your hair. It looks fucking killer. If you have no idea who I am and you have no idea what this is, this is the writer's chat for December the 14th. Fun fact, I started putting the date on the graphics to keep me straight. It's really helping. Um, I'm John. Hi. And it's it's my great pleasure to help you write better. So let's do the regular intro, shall we? 
Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, dreamers, believers, hopefuls, chefs, line cook, prep cook, parents, single parents, hustlers, side jobbers, gig economists, anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist, anybody who had to be like me outside today when it was cold. Bakers, aspiring bakers, planning bakers, seminary students. We haven't given them a shout out. Seminary students. Uh, Twitch streamers, Twitch rapper is apparently a thing. So shout out to the Twitch rappers, beat factories, hip hop heads, anybody who's ever enjoyed a good remix. And most importantly, the comrades. It's so wonderful to be here. It's so good tonight. I'm, I'm really looking forward. If you don't know what this is, by the way, this is the writer's chat where I answer questions from well, just a stack of places all across social media. Uh, 13 questions seems to be our new format. It was supposed to be just like a one-shot to one-time thing, and surprisingly, it really took off. So let's keep doing it this way. 13 questions about all manner of things, writing and editing and marketing and publishing and just being a writer. And uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this, right? You ready? Yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's see what's up first. Question number one. Already I can tell you question number one is going to hurt me deep in my soul. Question number one. What is chat GPT and can it write my book for me? Imagine the, the face I'm making right now. <sighs> chat GPT is the latest iteration of conversational AI bot system that, uh, responds right now in sort of that 20 questions um, iterative system that allows you to ask a question and get an answer that sounds more like a person and less like a robot than the last three iterations of AI. Now, let's be real super clear here. This is not a tool to help you write better. This is not a tool to help you get published easier. This is a tool that someone is going to profit from, either because they're charging you money to use it, which is what they're doing right now with a pay-for-token system, or this is somebody who's going to profit from the data you have to offer in order to use this thing, which right now is your name, your email address, and a phone number in order to verify something, meaning they have your info. They already have your info. This is another way to get it. You keep giving it out, whatever. But a chat GPT AI has the ability to write in a conversational human sounding ish, because it's not perfect, a human sounding ish way. That sounds in an ideal perfect world scenario. That sounds fantastic. We're one step closer to having like a robot friend for me. That sounds great. However, here's some significant problems. One, it is not perfect. It has about the same hit or miss quality as all our bullshit grammarly and grammarly adjacent nonsense. So it kind of sort of does grammar and it kind of sort of puts sentences together and it kind of sort of approximates human speech. But it also kind of sort of sucks at it. So the answer to this question, can it write a book? Yeah, I'm sure it could. I'm sure you could ask it to to write 100,000 words based on a plot prompt that you give it. Is that going to be a good story? I don't know. I don't think so. And I don't think 
uh, right now it's at a stage, and I don't think it'll ever get to a stage where it will be able to create art because there are two things fundamentally missing from chat GPT and two things chat GPT has that art doesn't have. So let's cover the two things it has, or the two things it's lacking first. We'll do that first. The two things it's lacking. One, it's lacking imagination. Any AI, I don't care what it is, whether it's Skynet, ChatGPT, whatever the next two stupid AI things are, it's lacking imagination. It requires data in order to generate its answers. So if no one sits down and really interacts with it at volume, at speed, in a variety of ways, it can't just be one person doing everything. It's got to be a variety of people. It, it, it doesn't have imagination. It can only iterate and only develop based on what data you give it because it's still a stupid computer. That's just how it is. It's not going to be anything else. So it lacks imagination to really develop the idea. If somebody gave it something, if it was prompted like a hack writer on, you know, during NaNoWriMo, sure, I'm sure it could do just as mediocre a job as somebody who doesn't give a shit about what they write. Sure, no problem. But it lacks imagination, and that's always going to be the first thing that helps distinguish it from significant quality art production. Here's the other thing it lacks. It lacks nuance. The ability to affect and evoke in an emotional way to a person because it itself is not a person. It's a series of ones and zeros and electrical currents. And to the best of our ability, to the best of our knowledge right now, there's always going to be that sort of weird, strange alienness to the idea that, oh, that's a fuck, I'm talking to a bot. It's, it's sort of like when you go log into any help system for any service currently running and they pop that little chat window up and for about two seconds you think maybe you're talking to a person, but then the, the speed and, and uncanniness of the answer, you're very clearly in an automated system. It's lacking nuance, so it doesn't sound like a person. It's lacking imagination, so it can't really aspire, think, and develop for itself. The two things it has that art doesn't slash shouldn't have are pretty simple. One, um, it's it's supposed to be heralded as the thing that's going to speed up work. Art is not meant to be sped up. Art is never meant to be sped up. Art is meant to be created independent of rush. And, and we know this because traditional publishing puts people on a rush and sometimes the work suffers. Art is produced because art has a value and a function societally and, and personally, emotionally, evocatively. And it doesn't really give a shit about how it's going to automate more things so that we can be more productive so that we can crush it, bro. F- uh, developing it, I should say, as a way of being hyper-productive is counterintuitive to the development of art because that's not a thing you want to rush. That's not a thing you want to maximize for greatest profit because that's not the point of art. The point of art is to reach other people, connect with them, give them an emotional experience, and share some collective thing with them, whether it's a feeling, a mood, a vibe, an idea, or whatever. The idea that you want to turn that into another form of a hustle culture or a grind set or some other synergistic bullshit like that tells me that everybody who's telling me that ChatGPT is going to change everything are full of shit and at best they should line up against a wall and or meet the, the moving high end of a steel blade. They're, that It's dumb. 
it's bad. The other thing that ChatGPT has that art shouldn't slash doesn't have is it has the full backing of the tech bro community. Tech bros, for all their wonderfulness to attempt to be like a person, despite being devoid of empathy and compassion and the ability to understand human experience, um, despite all that, tech bros don't give a shit about art. They don't care. It doesn't occur to them to care because there's no profit. There's no immediate gain. They don't get anything from it. It doesn't, you know, like hella super help the world. They just want to know how they can get what they want, get what they can get, take it selfishly, and leave the wreckage and carnage behind. That's because fundamentally a tech bro is a selfish parasite on the teat of existence. And, and capitalism and this whole system of just gerontocratic uh, corporatocracy supports that. ChatGPT is their next tool in an effort to conform more of the potential artistic world to their vision rather than the other way around. Society and humankind flourishes when art is as valued as the commerce we do. If you, if you dig back even a few hundred years, you see that to be the case. It has since stopped being the case because... Well, because white dudes decided they were going to take over a lot of things and enslave other people and subjugate other other people and then make sure that some people always stood in the margins and we squelched the voice of anybody who promoted compassion or art or development or care, usually by murder. And then we're left in a situation where, oh my God, chat GBT is just going to be like the best, coolest thing because it'll take away the hard part of me writing a book. Hey, look, stupid. The hard part of you writing a book is the part you're supposed to be indulging in because the hard part of you writing a book is where you get to put your voice out into the world and where you get to be creative. And you're trying to automate that process, which tells me two things. One, it tells me you don't understand what the whole point of writing a book is. And two, it tells me you have no interest in actually exploring yourself. You're just looking to make a product. And if you want to make a product, go hang out with all those tech bros over there who are making widgets down at the widget factory because we're making art. And we're not in the fucking around business. We're going to make our stories and create things that will move and expire, you know, give other people experiences and share our souls with things and, and get ourselves out of ourselves and into others so that we are collectively connected. Chat GPT will never do that. That's what chat GPT is a problem. And yeah, it can write a book for you. Go ahead. See what happens. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go go ahead. You'll be right up there with all the uh, Lenza art people who were profiting off uncredited, unsourced art. You'll be right up there with everybody who's got a new PFP. Remember like a couple months ago, everybody was all about those itty bitty little monkey photos. And, and now that dude who made up all the invisible techno crypto money got arrested in the Bahamas. So, wow, that stuff was really popular and super caught on, right? This one's next. So yeah, go ahead. Let chat GPT write your book for you. See what happens. Next question. Question number two, besides the New York Times, what are my options for a list run in 2023 with the USA Today shutting down its lists? Okay. A couple things here, a couple terms to define. First of all, a list run is the very old fashioned within the last 10, 15 years, old fashioned idea that you, in order to be a successful author, need to be on a bestseller list. That's what a list run is. You want to make a run to get on the bestseller list. USA Today used to maintain, it doesn't, it no longer does because layoffs, because capitalism, because, well, we'll get there in a minute. 
but USA Today used to maintain a bestseller list. And it was a big deal to be on that because USA Today gets delivered to every, you know, hotel room in the world. Like USA Today is everywhere. Uh, well, less so now, but it used to be. And it's that nostalgia that preserves this illusion that the USA Today's bestseller list was really important. Because um, fun fact, the New York Times bestseller list is less important than you might think. It's delightful and it's great to be on it because it means you've sold a certain number of books, but you can also buy your way onto that list. You can also um, donate a large sum of money to the New York Times and get on that list. You can also just be trendy and not sell the same amount as somebody else and get on that list. A list run is one of those nostalgic things like Jiffy Pop or the Pet Rock or the old-fashioned white paper newsletter that sounds like it's really good and it sounds like it's exactly how you're going to be successful, but it's one way of success in a very limited frame that is not indicative of the potential success you could have elsewhere. Yeah, it means you've sold a lot of books, and if that's your only barometer for success, hey, good for you. I hope you sell a lot of books independent of your presence on a list because list runs are old-fashioned, and you deserve better. Why? Because the vast majority of people don't give a fuck about lists anymore. Why? Because they're on their phones, because they're online, because... How often do you really sit down in your day-to-day and go, oh, shit, what's going on with USA Today? Which is exactly the problem why it folded. Because these lists are part of an archaic system built up and stapled together through traditional publishing's gatekeeping to give you the idea that if you're not on that list, and there's only like 36 total like spaces on that list out of the 250 total. We only really talk about the top 10 really, but do you really want to live in a world where we only say 10 people are making it as authors and everybody else can get fucked? Is that really a thing you want to do? Cause a list run will do that. A list run perpetuates the system that there's going to be some small percent of people way up here and everybody else is going to be down here. Is that what you're cool with? Cause if that's what you're cool with, awesome. Good for you, bro. I hope you really find that experience. Great. Cause if you really want to make a list run, have you thought about, Oh, I don't know, making sure you're listed in your local library making sure you're speaking to a number of activist groups, making sure you're speaking to community groups that represent your readership. Have you thought about talking to schools? Have you thought about getting listed in terms of the social outreach that your book can have in marginalized voices? Have you thought about talking to people more than showing up on a list? Has that been an idea? Maybe, could be, kinda, sorta, possibly. I don't mean to get all spicy about it. I really don't mean to get all spicy about it. But um, if you really want to make a list run, you are tying your hands together and then wondering why you can't hold so much. You want to make a list run? Fine, great. Um, every other newspaper has a bestseller list. We don't talk about it. L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune, Boston Herald, Dallas Morning News, uh, Sacramento Bee, Miami Herald, uh, Indianapolis Star, uh, whatever the paper in St. Louis is. It used to be the St. Louis Gazette, but that was like 200 years ago. Um, the plain reader, you know, loads of lists. What do they mean? They just mean you sold a lot. Is that your only criteria for success? Because you could sell a lot and not be on that list. Loads of people. The Post-Dispatch in St. Louis. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate that. The Post-Dispatch. They have a list. Um, 
that can't be and that shouldn't be your only criteria for success as an author. It's a visible sign of success and it's an easy sign of success if you're speaking to a boomer or upper gen X crowd who understand that a bestseller list, wow, that's how we used to rank authors. That's a great way of doing that. But you got to understand the majority of your readerships, mm -mm, not there anymore. So consider embracing a wider audience by doing more than opening and or doing more than limiting, I should say, doing more than limiting your appeal to just making a list run. If you want to make a run at something, make a run straight to people. Come into new marketing. Come into new strategies. Some of the new strategies, by the way, look a lot like the very, very old strategies of, hi, I have books. Do you want to talk about them? Hi, here's a microphone. Let's start talking to each other. Hi, here's a phone. You want to have a chat? Old things are coming back. Eventually, yes, I'm sure lists will come back. But right now, they are on the way out. So let them go. But yeah, you can do plenty with forming and shaping a successful book strategy. But you got to stop trying to measure yourself against the signs of success from 10 years ago because those days of publishing are gone. And wanting them to come back will not summon them. This isn't like when you say Tom Arnold in a mirror three times, Tom Arnold appears. Um, this is more a matter of you have to let that go because we're not doing that anymore. I believe it was the very great Kylo Ren said, who said you have to let the past die. Well, I, I, I'm all for necromancy, but this is one time where we got to let this thing die, okay? What an amazing two questions to start with. On we go to the third. Question number three. Is it a good idea to release a holiday-themed book around that holiday? Or should I avoid competing with traditional publishers who do this? Okay. All right. We're going to get a mouthful of tea first. Because, oh, good grief, do we have some things to unpack. Get that rack out of your hotel room closet because we're going to unpack some baggage here. All right, here we go. Let's do this. Step number one. Let's break this question in half. Is it a good idea to release a holiday-themed book around that holiday? So we are coming up right now on Christmas, New Year's, and other Yule-based days. And some people have Christmas, New Year's, and Yule-based books. Is it a good idea to release that book around that holiday? Sure. It's certainly going to make more sense to do that now than in, like, April. Yeah, there's some there's some synergy. There's some connection you can make there. It's a great idea. It doesn't mean you can only do it now. You could roll the Christmas book out in July. That's why Christmas in July is a thing. You could roll the Christmas book out in January. You could roll the Christmas book out whenever. But is it a good idea to do it? Yes, it's a great idea. Is it the best way to do it? No, there is no best way. There is just a way. Do it this way. Now... Another mouthful of tea, and then we're going to take a stab at this back half of the question where I am going to really make sure that this vein in my forehead doesn't suddenly erupt and I don't keel over on this camera. Here we go. Or should I avoid competing with traditional publishers who do this? Oh, boy. Okay, I don't know how to tell you this. I love you very much. I don't know how to tell you this. There is no earthly way you are competing with a traditional publisher. Unless you are yourself in your own home, a billion-dollar company, you are not competing with traditional publishers. They don't even know who the fuck you are. They don't even care. 
They're a company. They are devoid of that compassion. They're also devoid of that interest. Books come out all the time. At no point, if you, right there, you watching this or listening to this right now, if you release your book tomorrow and somebody else watching this or listening to this releases their book tomorrow, the two of you are not competing. You've just done two things. So to, to use a different example, I just had a mouthful of a drink, right? I have a glass here. I raised it to my mouth. I poured liquid into my body. Somebody else somewhere is doing the exact same thing, just statistically somewhere on the planet, right? I'm not competing for drinking with them. First of all, um, I win, I, well, I used to win many, many drinking contests. This is not that me anymore, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not competing just because I'm doing the same task. And you're not competing with an author just because they put out a book the same time you do. And you are certainly not competing with a billion-dollar company because you're just a you're, you're not even a fly on their radar until you are moving, oh, God, a grotesque number of books. And if you were moving that many units in sales, you wouldn't be asking this question. You are going to run into a schedule of release for somebody any day you release a book, any day. You might have to dig a little to figure out who's dropping a book on what day, but I guarantee you that you are never the only person on a given day of any given week of any given month of any given year putting out a book. There are billions of humans on this planet. Just the math alone. Somebody else is putting a book out and there is no way you are competing with them because the number of people who will buy your book is not finite and people have the ability to make more than one purchase. It's not a closed system. Your book isn't going to be the last book on a shelf. This isn't like we're trying to get a Christmas present for our kid in some 90s sitcom. You're not competing with anybody. You're just producing your book. You're just making it available at a certain time. The first half of the question, first half, not the second half. The second half is, is the part of the question rigged and laced in fear and perpetuating the gatekeeping cycle of traditional publishing. I could, that can walk, send that away, yeet that to the sun. But that first half, should I release a holiday book around the holiday? Sure. It would help if you tailored your marketing to it. It would help if you had more to say about it. It would help if you made sure that, hey, I'm talking, you know, it's a Christmas book on Christmas. So let's do some Christmassy jingle bell shit. It would help to do it that way. You don't have to, but it would help. But if you drop that book, your Christmas book in August, you want to tailor it a little bit so that we're not repeating like it's December in August because you don't want to look like a clown. But it's a good idea to put your book out and tie your holiday theme to your holiday. Now, if that holiday, let's say you do Christmas, right? And Christmas, and you think that Christmas is all about family. Because for some people, that's how they perceive Christmas. We don't all see it as the, you know, capitalist black hole. So we say it's about family. What other days, what other holidays, what other events evoke that feeling of family for you? Those are also good holidays around which to release that themed book. It doesn't have to be like, it's a Christmas thing, so it's got to be Christmas. Like, yeah, you can do that, but you are not limited to that. That's just the most common avenue. But if you also think that 4th of July is a family holiday in the U.S., because for some people it is, why not throw a Christmas book out on the 4th of July? Maybe Arbor Day means something to you. Well, then I guess your Christmas book's coming out on Arbor Day. Like, there's... 
there's no real limitation that says it's only allowed to come out at a certain time. Don't don't read into the idea that it's X holiday, so it's got to come out at X time. It just doesn't work that way. Thank you so much for the tip. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, I need you to know that that's, that's literally going to like, I can tell you exactly where the tip's going to go. That's going to buy cat food for the next like three weeks. You, you just fed my cats and I'm, I'm sincerely grateful. Thank you. I'm going to go hit the button and get another mouthful of tea. Are there any questions from anybody in either chat? Cause I forgot to mention we are yet again on both YouTube and Twitch at the same time. So I'm going to get a mouthful of tea. I will even, I don't know if Jesse is here yet, but I'll do the tea update, but let me, let me get something to drink first. Yes. By the way, if you're curious, I will totally flag this in the podcast feed as, Oh my God, a surprisingly spicy writer's chat. Cause those first couple questions fired me right up. Um, tonight's tea is Madagascarin from Madagascar. Uh, I got it from a nice lady at a Methodist church. It's delicious. It's got like a, it's got like a real strong leaf kind of like, it's real dark. It, it's, I had to put a lot of ice in it to thin it to the consistency I like. Cause it's, it's got that almost mocha consistency and it's got this real strong, like dirt leaves grass vibe that I love in, in good tea. So yes, Jesse, there's your tea update. We'll cover that again later. Are there, however, any questions from, I'm doing super well, thank you. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? I'm having a delightful evening. Dinner was large and filling, and the first couple questions fired me way the hell up. So let's let's answer more questions. Who's got one? Let's go. Or shall we just move on to the next one? You have a question. Is there a rule of thumb for how long a scene should be before it ends and another begins? Like no more than three action beats or one location change or 5,000 words. There is no magic rule that says a scene has to be a certain size. There are types of writing, playwriting, screenwriting, that dictate a scene has sort of a size, but mostly that's a function of the formatting of the, of the, the piece of paper. Generally, a scene, excuse me, a scene is as long as it needs to be to convey the information it needs to convey. So if you need to have like multiple location changes because you're in a car chase or your characters are teleporting thanks to the power of magic or something, you can have as many changes or alterations or beat types as you want. If you're having like a uh, a fist fight that is also a dialogue thing because two people are arguing and occasionally they're throwing punches at one another, then, um, yeah, you can have as many things as you want. As The scene is as long as the scene needs to be. If I'm working with somebody, like for a client, uh, generally scenes can be whatever they need to be. If, if one scene is 100 words and another scene is like 9,000, as long as it makes sense and accomplishes what it needs to, I'm totally fine with it. It's it's no problem at all. What a great question. Now, here's another delightful question. Do I have any thoughts on AI art? Yes. Oh, God, yes. Okay, so I, I'm... All right, so let's start from the beginning of this whole thing. I thought it looked cool. 
because it was interesting and new and I, I liked the color palette and I liked the art style I was seeing. At the time I thought that thought, I didn't know much other than like, oh, that's AI art. Okay. It's going to be the new hot popular thing. I didn't know anything else about it. As I learned that AI art draws on work that has been posted or created by other people, and it takes that already made art, made by already done artists, and appropriates it with no credit, no financial recovery, no purchase, no notation, no nothing. It just takes their shit and claims it as its own. It's a thief. And I'm not talking like... It's not like piracy where there's no harm done. There's direct harm done because if AI art, if an AI grabs your art, it reduces your ability to sell your product. Whereas something like bootlegging the live show from a concert 30 years ago does not impede that band's ability to continue to produce music. AI art is theft. AI art is a way of minimizing the impact of voices that need to be elevated it minimizes the ability and intimidates and bullies artists into giving into a system that is out of their control it looks cool but that's because the source art is cool those artists are the one who need our support those are the artists we should be lifting up those are the artists whose opportunities should be numerous and voluminous and the AI is a tool that much like everything else fostered and promoted by tech bros and everywhere else, uh, it's just taking their hard work and silencing them. So yeah, it can look cool. And I appreciate the, the idea that we could make a system that does this, but the use of it, I, I, I can't ethically condone. I'm impressed by it, but that's because the art, at its core is impressive. Um, I, I'm a little embarrassed, honestly, and angry at myself a little that I, I thought it was as cool as I did before I realized like, Oh shit, that's some, somebody else drew that. And this AI is just grabbing it. When I found that out, I, I was really, I was really irritated, really uncomfortable with it because I, I didn't know that was what AI did. I thought mistakenly and misinformed as I was or uninformed as I was that AI was generating these things with, with software and programs and coding. And it's not, it's not at all. Um, it's, it's, it's re I mean, yeah, it's fun. And like, I, I, I look at a lot. My, I have many friends who are like, I have 20 profile, you know, like 20 versions of a photo of me and they're gorgeous. I mean, they're, they're beautiful pieces of art done in a style that is exactly what somebody else should have given them, you know? And for the money they spent on Lenza tokens, they could have paid an artist to do the same, like an actual human artist, they could have paid them the same thing. And they should have. Um, it's one thing when it's fun and it's great and we don't, we're not aware of it. Like when we're a little kid, we don't think about the slave labor that manufactured the shoes you run outside in. But when you become aware of like, Oh God, there was like a six year old who stitched the swoosh on my Nikes. Um, you don't necessarily want to stop using your shoes cause you need to, 
But at the same time, you want to be cognizant that what is a fun thing for you possibly has a cost we need to consider as we get older and move down the road. And if I had an opportunity where I had to buy somebody shoes, I would steer them away from Nike's first and then into something that's a bit more, maybe not ethical because Tom's shoes isn't all that ethical, but at least I wouldn't jump on the Nike boat right away. You know what I mean? Like I, Oh my God, lens art is really popular. Cool. Um, yeah, it, it can stay over there. That's cool. Good for it. Um, support better artists. If, if we pay more people to do more things, AI art falls to the wayside, just like those little monkey photos or the, the, the variety of everybody can mint their own crypto. Remember when we did that? It was like digital pogs for a hot second. Weird shit. Any other questions? Yeah, I, I, mm. it really bugs me because I want there to be tools that amplify voices. I want there to be tools that allow people who feel like they don't get a seat at the table. I want there to be tools that give them seats. And so far, all the tools I've seen masquerade as that. They, they make, they, they seem like a wolf in sheep's clothing. They seem like, oh yeah, it's an art thing that's going to make art more available for other people. Yeah, but at the same time, we're silencing people who should be in that seat. I'm not cool with that. I'm never going to be cool with that. I can look at the art and go, oh, shit, that's a really badass, like, weird lich in a bow tie. But at the same time, like, that, some other human being drew that shit. Let, let's give them some credit at the very least. That's how I feel about it. What a wonderful question. Thank you for getting me thinking about that. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. And there never could be. It's not built for that. Other questions or shall we march on? Let's march. Question number four. I found a mistake in a book. Do I say something or not? All right. We're going to divide this into two things first. One, is it really a mistake or is it something you don't like? Mistakes, actual errors... Uh, come in a couple flavors. The most common being errors in production, like the indenting or the spacing is all weird on a page, or digitally, like it for whatever reason, it gets smushed or compressed or chopped or something. Or it's errors of typesetting, like there's an extra T that got missed in a copy pass, or a paragraph repeats because that's just the way it was uh, produced. Those errors are small, fundamentally insignificant, and are absolutely the sort of thing you should talk about. The errors where it's an error because you don't like it, like you don't think there should be a comma there, or you don't think you should say don't there or something, and you want to like wave what you think is the I know passive voice better than you. Um, that shit you keep to yourself because... Um, Ultimately, it doesn't matter. It really and truly doesn't matter. And I'm saying this as somebody who edits books, who works with people who make books. Like, it's one thing if the page is printed weird and it's hard to read. It's another thing if you're going to complain on chapter three that, like, there's a dangling modifier. Because, one, uh, from a publishing standpoint, you the publisher is not about to stand in every bookstore with a pen and rewrite the sentence. That's just impractical and impossible. 
So if it's a mistake where you disagree with the the fun, the, the function of language, um, don't you're not going to like what do you get from that? What are you going to get a pat on the head like oh good for you you spotted a comma splice? Um, it's not it who like who cares like do you want a cookie like why are you pointing this shit out? You think you're going to help the writer have a better experience? Do you, how embarrassed would you be? How would you feel if somebody you didn't know randomly came out of the blue and was like, hey, 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 you know on page 112 of that thing you worked for eight years to write? On 112, you fucked up this sentence. How, how are you going to feel when that happens? How is that going to work for you? Why would you do that to somebody else? Why? What a, why would you do that? That's messed up. If, however, it's a formatting thing, like, hey, there's like some weird ass spacing in like this whole chapter. All of a sudden it's like triple spaced. And then when I turn the page two more times, it's fine again. Yes, that is something you want to go talk to the publisher about, especially with a digital product, because that stuff can be easily fixed. But if, if you're just highlighting this stuff because, oh, my God, I want to like get I want to like be you want to be that person where like oh my god i found an error like who cares the book's published they did the thing um it it doesn't it doesn't help like and especially in those reviews where it's like this book would have benefited from an editor yes sure absolutely it would have but that better not be the only thing you say in your review because that's just a shitty thing to tell a creative person if you want to say this book had a lot of promise, but I think editing would improve it. Follow that up with the things I liked or the thing I think had promise was dot, 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 one, two, three. Don't just, don't just come and be shitty to somebody. Like we can all be better people than that. I don't like peas, but when somebody makes me some food and there are peas in it, I don't eat the peas, but I eat the food unless the whole thing is peas, at which point I just politely say, thank you so much. I'm going to freeze this because I have enough food for today and then I never eat it. But by and large, like, don't be shitty to people just because, oh, my God, I found a mistake. Like, okay, good for you. Have a cookie. Sit down. Um, formatting stuff's fixable. Proofing stuff is fixable. Um, story, narrative, grammar stuff accomplishes nothing. It just makes somebody feel shitty. Uh, I have I have worked on and produced and helped format books where I know there are errors in it. I'm I've got a there there's books there's this little shelf right here. There's there are two books I can point to where there are formatting errors. They they left like an extra chevron and a note in there, and they left like there's two capital letters on one paragraph, and I'm embarrassed because like I should have pointed that out in one of the drafting stages. I didn't. I look at it now and I'm like, well, that was six years ago. That was 10 years ago. That was 12 years ago. When, what, what am I going to like the company's not even around. What am I going to do? I'm just going to, well, okay. Lesson learned on we go. Don't you're not, there's no prize. Don't, don't take this as a great badge of honor, but if you can constructively suggest to a production that, Hey, the thing you made needs to be redone. Like, Earlier this week, I had an audio issue in recording something, so this week I will re-record the audio. Um, that's a fixable thing. But if somebody were to tell me that in the middle of a giant, long-ass recording, hey, John, you, you misnamed... I was talking about The Hobbit. Hey, John, you misnamed one of the dwarves one time. Oh, okay, cool. Like, that's nice. I'm going to, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help. Try to help. Be helpful. Be a good person. Let me go to the next one. 
Question number five. What is the trinary braid of narrative design? Oh boy, howdy. I'm excited for this one. Okay, you know how I talk about the story triangle with uh, three points of a triangle being plot, character, and world building? That's, that's one way of interpreting the three major elements of story. It makes them separate. And it allows people, especially people who don't necessarily have a strong familiarity with all the parts, like they're really good at one or two, but not necessarily all three, and they have some distinction between the two, like their their worlds are less important than their plots or their characters, or their worlds are a really big deal, but maybe not the characters so much, whether that's a function of their developing their craft, or it's just the way they're telling the story, that doesn't really matter. But one of the ways I most commonly teach this stuff is to keep things separate but related so that we can really focus on making each one of them really effective. Great stuff. However, it's not the only way to do this. The other, well, not even the other, one of the other ways to do this is what's called the trinary braid, which takes these three things, plot, character, and world, it's always the same three, and it relates them and twists them and braids them together like hair or dough in one of those fancy loaves of bread, right? The trinary braid suggests that all three of these things are very much related to each other and are interdependent on one another so that your character arc is rooted or related to or caused by or helps cause your plot, which is related to or caused or caused by or f uh, supported by your world building. And all three of these things benefit from and harm and affect and impact and inform. And it, it really helps take our triangle and start to torque it into a little curl. It makes things way more related and they're still distinct, but now they're way more interdependent and we can't develop one not so much in a vacuum, but we can't develop one without fundamentally also altering the other two. This, for some people, is a little bit too complex. That's not because they're dumb or it's a bad idea. It's just that it's operating at a story thought level that they're not at yet. They're, they're still figuring out what their first draft is. They're still figuring out like what my character arc is going to be. And to suddenly come in at them and go, like, all right, hey, you know your world building needs to develop relative and proportionate to your character arc when you don't know what your character arc is? That can freak some people out. It's also... Uh, not always a thing we apply in prose fiction because prose fiction allows you a lot more space, physical room to, in a manuscript to write tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of words. You'll see more of a trinary braid in more um, active actor, like stage play, television, theater, screenplay, improv, anything a human has to embody somewhat on the fly where you're dealing with more theater of the mind than things that are more constructed in text. If you have a chance to write something down, you can still braid things in a trinary way. It's just that your braids have to be a little bit more involved or your braids can go the other way and be a little bit simpler. But if you're an actor and you're out there with like, all right, I'm in this scene, here's my motivation, this is what I got to say, how do I get it out of my face hole? This is where braiding things together can make it feel more urgent, make it feel more spontaneous, make it feel more evocative. It's a different way of designing a thing. Not necessarily better, just different. How you can apply it for your own work, 
wherever you're at, whatever it is, there's loads of ways you can apply this. One of the easiest is to just kind of like ease into this braiding approach. So take one of the elements of your triangle, take one of the elements of your story, your main character arc, your plot, some basic world building, right? Take one of those elements and figure out how it very much is affected by the other elements. So if your character arc is all about how uh, your character has to, let's think of a really easy one. Your character has to learn, uh, learn to trust others, right? So if our character arc is about learning to trust others, how does that, how does our plot, whatever our plot is, how does our plot push or twist or pressure or affect or even make possible that arc? How does our, how does our plot influence our character arc? Maybe because our character has to learn how to trust other people because the plot is they have to figure out who the corporate saboteur in their job is. So now I've taken the character arc and I've helped braid it to the plot. I've twisted things around. So as one thing advances, the other advances. And maybe because I've got now these two things twisted, I can bring in the world building and complicate both of that stuff. So if I've got to find a corporate saboteur, the world building elements I'm going to build the most are going to be this corporation, the backstory of it, the way the, the structure works, who this crooked evil CEO is, the the connections of the, what the janitors do late at night, the mysterious floor that the elevator doesn't reach all the the secrecy and conspiracy of it all of that is going to inform who i can and can't trust as the main character and how the plot pushes and pulls on all of that and how the world building with this strange phantom floor and this evil ceo and the the red herring i could create there you could um you could really push and pull on that. Now, here comes a question. How best, hang on, how to best visualize the trinary braid with an A plot and a B plot? Each one is braided to a character arc and the world, or should I see all three braided together and then braided to character and world? Jay, that's an amazing question. Okay, you can do either, but I want to walk you through them both just so you're clear. All right, if you have an A plot and a B plot, which is legit, no sweat, your braids are going to be, you're going to have two a braid for the A plot, so a character world b- plot braid for A, and a character world plot for B. And those two three-part braids, your A braid and your B braid, let's call it, they're not necessarily going to braid. They're going to be two separate things going on. So you've got your A3 and your B3. Can you braid the, the thing together so you get six things all braided? Sure. Go to town, Jay. Do I think that's always the best way to go? No, it depends on the story itself. But the easiest way to manage this and visualize it is you've got one plot, one set of one plot with one character arc or a pile of character arcs and one set of world building all braided together. Then over here, B plot, B plot, B character plot, B world building all braided together. So you got all your A's in a pile and all your B's in a pile and those braids are individually braided. That's going to be the easiest way to visualize and structure it. Now, let's go the other way. Let's go a little bit more, not necessarily highbrow, but let's, let's, let's take it the other way. If we make a braid of A plot, B plot, and then bring in character and world, it's essentially just one big braid with lots of little pieces. So you're, you're starting to muddy the waters between what is A and what is B plot, which is fine. There's utility for that, like in a mystery or something. 
But by and large, you want to make sure that however many plots you have and however many character arcs you're dealing with, and don't freak out. I'm not talking about like multiple point of view stories. I'm saying, here's my plot. Here's my arc. However many I have. If you start bringing in multiple characters, it starts getting a little like frenetic and not necessarily the best choice for our world building strategy. So take all your plots, take all your character arcs. And since your world building is generally going to be one single thing, because you don't, because if we're following like a Sorkin-esque plot, they're all happening in the same place, whether it's a, a news station or the White House or a sports center or something, your world building is going to be that sort of cohesive bubble, that barrier around everything else. So you can braid and twist all the interior parts and the world building helps hold it together. That's usually the safe play. But generally, you're going to braid all your A's together and all your B's together. One, two, three, four, five, six. And I can't twist my fingers that much anymore. But um, you're generally, I'm making a face, Jay, generally not braid your A braid to your B braid because you want to make sure you don't lose anything in the shuffle. I hope that I hope that makes sense. I hope that's a good way of thinking about it. If I need to find props, um, I, I will grab a twist tie and I will try to re-explain it. But um, I hope that explanation works. What an amazing, that's a, that's a deep question. I hope that, I, that was a great one. Love that one, Jay. Good stuff. Um, shall we move on? Question six. What's one thing you miss creatively that you want to do more of in 2023? I think they mean me, not you. Um, okay. A thing I definitely miss and I miss more and more of all the time, I don't game as much. Like I play some video games, but I, I don't I don't game as much with my friends. Um, I have friends. They are gaming people. Some of them, not all of them. I, I don't game as much with them. Uh, I'd like to. It is, a, it is a time commitment and there's lots of different pressures and lots of different reasons why I can't or don't because scheduling is a, is a bitch that way. But um, I, I do miss role-playing games. Not just like, you know, reinstalling Final Fantasy on the PlayStation or something and not just grabbing an MMO and getting back into it. Although those are fun and those are great, but it's still pretty much just me sitting here. Um, I miss that collaborative... We're just hanging out and making up a story on the fly because since the last time I did it, I really think I've grown not only as a person because therapy, but I think I've also become better at telling story and better at shaping story. And I, I, I give a shit far more than I did back the last time I did it. I think I'd have even more fun and I think I could make it more fun for other people, whether I was in charge or just a player or what I, I think I'd, I think I'd like to do more of that. Um, I have said publicly in a lot of places, I would love to be even just like a guest spot on an AP for something, even if it's just an audio fiction or whatever. I'd love to give that a shot. Um, that's one of the things I really want to try and get out there and do in 2023. You know, here's this microphone. Here's me. Let's, how can I help you, you know, make a cool story with your friends or whatever. I'm not... To be clear, to be hyper super clear, I am not interested in producing another role-playing game, but I totally want to play more games with cool people, if that makes sense. Not so much the business, just the fun shit. That's what I want to do more of. What an amazing question. 
definitely one of those things where like you out there listening, watching this, you should totally think about shit like that. Like, what would you do? What, what do you care about? What would, what, what's something you want to do more of in 2023 and what, what concrete steps can you find to make that happen? Even if they're big steps, even if it's like, first I have to find a group of friends, like figure out what those steps are so that it doesn't just stay this abstract thing in your head, right? Like, so it doesn't just stay like, oh man, I wish I had like five people because then I'd do that. Okay, write it down. Figure out if you can make it happen because otherwise it just stays this thought in your head. And I have too many of those things. Way too many of those. God, I wish dot, dot, dot. Try and make it something. I mean, there's always a good, there's always a good chance for that. There's always a good time for that. That's how I got started in podcasting. That's how I started doing this. I just wanted to start doing it and I fucked around until I found out and now I'm doing it. What an amazing, that, I love that question. Love that question a lot. Where's my next button? There's my next button. Are there any questions about anything while I get another mouthful of tea? Oh, man. Good stuff. Great questions tonight. Really just awesome. Love these questions so much. Also, somebody asked me after last chat... Uh, if I ever resolved that issue with my phone and the streaming stuff, yes, I turned my phone off and it no longer wants to be like another camera. So thank you for uh, following up with that because that was one of the most irritating things last week to constantly like look over here just out of my peripheral and you missed a smidge. There was an ad break. Jay, I had no idea there was an ad break. I'm so sorry. Um, do I DM? Yes, I do DM. I would love to DM. Uh, I would love to DM. I would love to play. Uh, it doesn't even need to necessarily always be Dungeons and Dragons, although I am experienced. I DM. I GM. I facilitate. Uh, I'm a great player. Yeah, totally do. Would love to do more of it. Really would really enjoy it. It would be Patreon worthy. Well, CJ, that's one of those things that makes me just, hmm. It would be Patreon worthy, wouldn't it? Oh, shit. All right. All right. Where's my notepad? Cool. It's on my list. I will think about that. Uh, I'll think about that tomorrow before therapy. What a, that's, that's excellent, Jay. Thank you. You planted that seed, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Any other questions? I didn't know there was an ad break. I really had no idea there was an ad break because uh, I didn't press the button. So I guess it's been X number of minutes. That's what does it. I don't know how that shit works. Um, I hope the ads were not intrusive or terrible. Again, no idea what the hell they were. I hope they were good though. Maybe something with like food, cheese, parties, something, anything. Any other questions? Else we will move on. Jay, I would be happy to run a game if you wanted to come and play. Yeah, I'll, let's do something. I'll make something happen. That sounds awesome. All right, I'm going to focus back on my work, though, before I get lost. and like, what game would I play? That'll be a different discussion. I'll, I'll, yeah, that's a different... Focus, John, focus. Question number seven. Thank God a focusing question. What are some tools that can help with continuity when writing a series? 
What about a story Bible? Do I write my own story Bible? First of all, yes. Um, just to clarify for story Bibles, you should more or less write your own. Uh, it does not need to be this super mega comprehensive document. It can be like, um, where's it? It can be a notepad with some just some like bullet points and squiggles on it. Like it doesn't need to be, like it does not need to be this big giant like Excel spreadsheet with I I I do that for like I give those to clients and you can get incredibly more detailed even beyond that. Like I have clients in the you know who have. D ring binders from school with partitions and folders and shit stapled and duct taped and they're old as hell and they're thousands of pieces of information. You don't have to go to that level of extreme. You just need to write down some basic stuff. A story Bible should, and I've talked about this before, story Bible needs at the very least a list of characters. So that way you know who the hell's in your story. A breakdown of what your plot is is always super helpful and a basic explainer on the rules. Those that's the bare minimum. You can put that on note cards. You can put that on a piece of paper. You can save it on your phone. You can write it in word. You can put it on Google. You could just whatever. That's, that's a story Bible. You have that stuff. You're covered. Great. Anything, uh, anything can be generated from that. You can use that to break down a scene list because anything past characters, plot and world is helpful, but not necessary. Like if you wanted to go the extra step and write a scene list so that you know, like the order of the scenes, here's scene one, here's scene two, here's scene three, and then break down like what happens in those scenes. That's going to make it really easy for you to keep things straight. If you want to go the extra, extra step with your characters and write down like the chapters or scenes they appear in and, you know, like their names and some descriptions, especially if you have like a lot of characters, that's only going to make it easier for you going forward as well. But again, all that other stuff is just optional things at the salad bar. You can do them. You don't have to do them, but they can be helpful and or story delicious for getting done what you need to get done. By and large, the best way to ensure continuity is by writing shit down. Whether that's post-it notes, whether that's note cards, whether that's a spreadsheet, whether that's just a big-ass list, whether that's a note on your phone, writing it down and making it tactile as opposed to like a verbal dictation thing. Because there's nothing wrong with leaving yourself like a voice memo. But the problem is a voice memo generally isn't scrubbable. It isn't searchable. So you got to go through like if you leave yourself a... If you're like me and you leave yourself long-ass voice memos... If you said something brilliant at minute 22, you got to wait through, you know, 21 other minutes of you kind of moving around in a circle before you get to the thing you want to talk about. Writing it down also helps you figure it out, organize it, concentrate your thought. Always going to be more impressive that way. But yes, a story Bible's basics are world plot and character in some combination, in some order, to some degree. Anything that takes that stuff out and adds to it, awesome not critical as much as I want to tell you like, yeah, dude, super critical to go to the nth degree with this stuff. Not everybody needs like that much, uh, structure. And yes, there are various sites that will, uh, will auto transcribe your audio. That is a super good point. Um, that's a very good point in fact. So yeah, you could, if you wanted to transcribe your audio, I didn't think of that. That's a very good point. Um, 
but yeah, you want to have some kind of written documentation, some kind of written way of organizing, like here are my thoughts and I can reference them when I need to, to maintain continuity. That all said, you, there, there's no quiz. Like there's no test at the end of the day, right? It's okay. If you blow some continuity, it happens. It doesn't ruin everything. You don't have to, you know, throw yourself upon the rocks. Is it frustrating? Sure. Is it forgivable? Yeah. If you have like a 17 book series and you, you know, miss the fact that a book ago, a character was 11 and now they're 14. Is it really the end of the world? No. Like you can kick yourself about it because, oh, I should have caught that if you want to, you know, hurt yourself like that emotionally, but it's not the end of the world. Don't, don't totally beat yourself up for continuity inconsistency. It's however, if you have no sense of continuity and you're trying to keep straight a lot of moving parts and you've been notoriously bad at it in the past, writing this stuff down in some way, shape or form makes a huge, huge difference. And yes, you can hire somebody, hi, to help you do that. But um, it's often sometimes easiest for you to do it yourself as well. Great question. <clears throat> Let's say I sign with a traditional publisher for $15,000. Good for you, hypothetical person. How do I get my money and what other money is spent on my manuscript? Oh, that's a mouthful of tea question right there. Hang on one second. Okay. $15,000. Sure. Let's do it. You're going to take that 15. You're going to, you're not going to get that 15 the day you sign the contract. That's, that's not how this works. You're going to get some percentage of that 15. And for the sake of my numbers, for the sake of my math, let's make this divisible because John's bad at math and it's been a long day. So let's say you get $3,000 up front. The day you sign the contract, the day you say, yes, publisher, publish my book, you're going to get $3,000. Now, so, now your contract is going to have what's called a schedule, and that schedule is going to be a list of conditions where you will get other money. Do this, get paid. Very straightforward. The next time you will get another installment of your $15,000 will be the day you finalize the manuscript because what's going to happen is after you submit your thing, it's going to get, it's going to get edited by some number of people to some degree. And it might be a couple days, weeks, months of bouncing back and forth to get it finalized because they're going to come in and edit and tweak and polish and change and trim and do this and do that. And it's going to help sort that stuff out when the story is ready to move forward and you mark the manuscript final. 99% of the time you will have a condition in your contract that says that's the next time you get another installment of your 15,000. And for our example, it's going to be another $3,000. Okay. Now what happens after that is your book is going to move forward into the production line. There will be meetings that you as a writer will not necessarily be invited to and that you will not know the necessary details of, but those are the meetings where they figure out like the cover and you know, the font and all that stuff, as well as the, the, st some stuff we're going to talk about in the back half of this question, but there are some meetings that you're not a part of, but the next time you get another installment of your $15,000, well, that's going to be probably the day your book, um, 
goes to print in terms of being produced for pre-sale galleys, reviews, critiques, blogs, marketing, arcs, that kind of thing. That's another day where you're going to get another installment of your 3000 So now we are at the third of five $3,000 installments. You will probably get a fourth installment somewhere in the mid-range there because five installments is a lot. But you'll probably get a, a, a $3,000 installment in there uh, when probably when pre-sales go live, when it becomes available now and your book is ready to be printed. And um, you'll get your fourth of five installments when your book is ready to go to the printer. You will get your last installment on the day or right around the day your book goes live out into the world ready to be purchased you will receive your last payment for this book. That is the entirety of your advance. That is the entirety of that money. Now, here comes, before we talk about what happens and the money, other money you spend on your manuscript, you need to know that you need to make back that money. So you won't see any money. There will be no additional money coming to you from this sale until you until your book sells $15,001. Sometimes it's $15,050. Well, we're going to round off to the next dollar just because. Again, it's been a long day. John's not great at math. You won't see anything. You'll have to, you know, other things will be happening. The book will be out in the world. People will buy it. But you won't get any additional money. You won't get royalty. You won't get like, hey, man, here's 600 bucks to keep you floating. Mm-mm. You're going to live off that advance. So be advised, be aware, right? Now, that's why writers keep writing books, by the way. However, that's not the only expenditure. Like the publisher isn't only spending $15,000 on you. The publisher is creating a couple things. Primary being what's called an operating budget. An operating budget is combination of all the other expenses related to and involved with your book. The operating budget includes your advance. The operating budget includes their expectation, their, their ballpark cost for editing, their ballpark cost for printing and, and shipping, because if you're producing a physical product, that's a substantial part of their publishing cost because you got to physically send books places and that costs money as well as the cover because you got to pay your cover artist and uh, as well as the marketing budget, how much money are they going to spend on ads at all various platforms and all various places. All of that goes into an operating budget. It is not necessarily a 50, 50 split. If you're getting 15,000 as an advance, they are not necessarily matching that 15 and saying we have 15,000 so that you have 15 plus 15 is a $30,000 total book investment. It is not necessarily the case. Sometimes yes, but not necessarily. Sometimes the advance vastly dwarfs everything else because the publisher wants to keep the writer around or impress the writer or put a big-ass number in a, in a press release or something, and more money goes to the author because they're confident that, based on the skill of the author, they will make their money back. The publisher is always interested, first and foremost, in making their money back because they hate spending money. Because they're not in the money spending business, they're in the money making business, and that's not the same business. So 
it is not uncommon for your advance to be a significant part of the operating budget. However, it's not the only thing. So what's going to happen is that editing that's going to go bouncing back and forth, that, that, that expense for hiring or paying that editor comes out of that budget. The cover artist, after you track one down, reserve time, book it, schedule it, set, you know, give art notes, bounce back a few designs back and forth, that comes out of your operating budget. Often the operating budget is a fixed number decided well in advance based on the publisher saying, we only have this much money available or we're only willing to give this much money available. And that often leaves after you take your advance, after you figure out your printing and shipping costs, because those are, those are math things. You can, you can figure that out. You can talk to your printer. You can talk to your distributor. You can do the math and figure out how much it's going to cost to print and how much it's going to cost to ship a book of a certain size and a certain paperweight. That's math. The leftover money is almost always going to be your marketing budget. Now, remember way back in the day, everybody was like, oh, the publisher will do the marketing for me. Yeah, when the publisher had way more money and was less averse to losing it, yeah, totally. The publisher would, way back in the day, have a bit more money in the marketing budget. Now, they pass that on to you. It's so good to see you, Troy. Um, they pass that money on to you because um, they want you to do the work because they don't want to spend more money because that's more money they have to make up in the sales of your book. It is, not, it is not uncommon at all to never really earn out your advance. Super common just to have a book out there and have it be out there for days, weeks, months, years before you earn out. It happens. Some, some people never earn out at all. That doesn't mean your book's not successful. You could sell a hell of a lot of copies. But remember, it's $15,000. If your book is $2.99... That's a lot of sales. Now, maybe, maybe you know, for whatever reason, you'll do that in your opening week. It's unlikely, but it's possible. Because one of the things that helps figure out how much advance to give you, as well as the size of the operating budget as a whole, is they look at your potential audience, what's called your potential spend, or your potential reach. Which is the idea of, hey, here's this author. Here's Bob... Kevin, Sarah, whatever the author, do they have an audience? Are they bringing people in? Do they have a very active social media presence? Do they have a big newsletter? Do they have a subscription list? Do they have a lot of followers on social media? Do they have people we can market this book to that maybe, hopefully, kind of, sort of, will buy the book and make us some money? If you don't have a big number, and I'm talking big number like at least three digits, if not more, if you don't have that and they're not active, like I have a newsletter and it's got 500 people, but I never use it. That's an inactive audience. That's not going to help you. You need people who are like, oh shit, where's your book at? You need people who are like ready to go champing at that bit so that they can go, oh, they've got an active audience. We can, we can afford to push a little more, lean in a little bit more, really capitalize on that audience, really use their reach to make an audience, to make some sales. That's the breakdown of the money. That's the reality of this business. It sucks. If it sounds frustrating and not very glamorous, it is frustrating and not very glamorous. The best way you as an author in the traditional publishing space can really do your best is to produce the best book possible 
relative to skill, relative to time, have it in as best a shape as possible, get it edited in advance, and make sure you've cultivated some amount of people beyond like, you know, five friends and your mom, cultivate an audience, cultivate an exp- uh, a platform, a reach, a range of people so that people know like when your book is ready, you've got these people lined up, you know, shut up and give me my, you know, take my money. And you've got those people ready to go. That's the best way to be appealing in a traditional sense. Don't be surprised if it doesn't suddenly catapult you to superstardom. Um, It doesn't work like that anymore. What an amazing question. Let's do the next. Number nine. Do you think content creation, doing it for the cont, has wrecked people's ability to write? Sort of. The answer is, my answer is sort of, because I think when we, we stop thinking about our book as art and we stop thinking about our idea as this creative thing we're going to put into the world and we start thinking about it as this thing we're going to slice up and put on social media and this thing we're going to put into newsletters and this thing we're going to do to get more eyes on us and this thing we're going to do to profit in some way, shape or form from it. The minute we start to commodify our previously non-commodified thing, I think it affects and impacts our ability to write. In the same way that if I want to maintain an audience here, you guys out there, how many do I have? Like a handful. Wow. A lot of people. Uh, if I want to maintain that audience, I want to, I want to monitor what I'm saying to some degree. I don't want to suddenly start spouting off like Kanye-esque things because I'd like to keep recording. I don't want to suddenly mope the other way around because I don't want to bum you out. I want to make sure I'm saying things that are engaging to keep people around. But at the same time, I want to balance that truth. I want to make sure I'm, I'm happy saying what I'm saying. I can live with what I'm saying. It's honest. It's helpful. And it sounds like me. I want to be true to me and I want to be good to you. It is a difficult relationship that way. And I think when we focus on that and that becomes the priority and that, that meta-awareness of, oh my God, I have an audience, I can't fuck this up, this is terrible. And I start looking and staring at this little number, I don't think you can see it on my screen, but I start staring, I'm pointing at it, staring at this little number about viewers and everything, oh my God, I suddenly become very conscious of how am I going to keep these people watching. I think it impacts the way I create. I think it impacts what I say and how I say it. So yes, when I start thinking about blogging, when I start thinking about my newsletter, when I start thinking about the story I want to tell, or this, that, or the other idea... The minute I shift that focus away from I'm telling the best story I can because I want to tell this fucking story to, oh, my God, people have to like it. Otherwise, I've wasted my time. That's where things I think really do take a hit. Do I think it's completely ruined it permanently? No, because we can always say, like, fuck it. I'm making a story. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to do this and I'll worry about the audience later. I don't know whether that's like a bravado thing or an ego thing, but I can tell you the times I'm able to detach from my audience or detach from my worry about an audience, I should say, I produce better stuff. The time I don't spend staring at the clock, staring at the little eyeball icon, I just talk and I don't even worry about the the, the camera or the little me that shows up on the preview monitor. When I'm just talking, I do great and I don't worry about it. So that's what I try to stick to. So content creation or content conceptually, I don't think has ruined people's ability. I think I think it sometimes carries undue weight. Great question. I'm going to get a mouthful of tea before I start coughing into this microphone. 
<clears throat> are there any questions from anybody in chat? We are kicking so much ass today. Talking, 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 doing great. How are you guys? I got yelled at in uh, somewhere. Was it an iTunes review for the podcast? Or maybe it was a chat comment. I get yelled at that I don't engage my audience in the same way, shape, or form that I'm supposed to. I'm making air quotes. Supposed to as a streamer. Um, okay, cool. Hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Your family's safe? Are you, are you good? Are you warm? Are you sheltered from the storm? You good? Are you just trying to survive? Have you eaten lately? Had a glass of water? Told somebody that you love them? Like, that's how I want to engage you. I, I, I want to know about your lives and the quality of your existences, but at the same time, like, I also want to make sure your basic needs are being met. So, what's up, my dudes? Or other phrases. I, I Somebody somewhere is going to give me shit for that later. I know it's coming. But let's go, boys. I don't know. Somebody's going to give me shit for that, too. Um, I just hope you're generally doing well. I'm, I'm sincerely grateful for each and every one of you. Every single second you, I, you're here. It means fucking everything to me. So thank you. I hope you're well. Questions. Else we will march on. I'm always impressed, to be real. I'm always impressed when people are like, hi, person, 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 person. Like, that's amazing that people do that. I, that, that intimidates the shit out of me. So I'm genuinely thankful, even if I don't, you know, call you out by name. Thanks for being here. You're fucking amazing. Shall we move on? Press the button. There we go. Question number 10. Over on the podcast, which, by the way, you can hear if you search John Helps You Write Better wherever you get podcasts. Over on the podcast, you've been talking about loops and character motivations. Yes, I'm going to be talking more about loops specifically. Let's see, today's Wednesday. And Friday's podcast is all about loop and loop creation. Um, how does this loops and character motivations feed into what I've already said about protagonist and antagonist motivations? What an amazing question. Okay, here's the deal. Character motivations is the big umbrella, the big container. Inside it, inside character motivations, sit protagonist motivation and antagonist motivation, since protagonists and antagonists are character labels. A loop is, and we'll talk about this on Friday on the podcast, is just a, just a series of events, consequences, actions, and things that are related because of some piece of material, some story thing, some element, some idea, some action, some scene, some concept, some theme, something, some stuff has related all this, all these other elements together. And they're in some kind of order, not necessarily immediately sequential, one, two, three, four, five, but they're they're related and they follow one another over and over and over again. That's a loop. You might also recognize a loop as a subplot or a character arc. It's any progression over the course of a story. A loop, a circle, is just one way to visually represent this information. Loops are often driven by character motivations because everything is driven by character motivations. A protagonist motivation or an antagonist motivation is a kind of motivation a character has. 
our protagonist acts on things because they are protagonistic. They're the hero of our story. They're our heroine. Our heroine who is taking, you know, photos or spying on the evil CEO is motivated as a character because she's, you know, trying to do the right thing. That's her big thematic arc. But her protagonist or her protagonistic motivation is that, you know, this CEO is responsible for her sister going to jail. It's more story-centric. So that's her protagonist motivation. The antagonist motivation is the specific motivation for the antagonist. Why is the bad guy specifically trying to bulldoze the orphanage? Because they're the bad guy in the story. But their character motivation as an antagonist is, well, they're just a bad guy. Character motivation, big picture, overarching umbrella, big space. Protagonist and motivation, antagonist motivation, subgroups underneath the big group. Loops contain all of these things. Not necessarily all of them all the time, but you can feed any of these motivations into loops. You can have loops of protagonist motivations and protagonist consequences and protagonist actions, and we'll talk more about that on Friday. But um, loops are just series of these things in order. Motivations are what drive a character, protagonist motivation, antagonist motivations are kinds of things, kinds of drives, kinds of actions underneath the big umbrella. Amazing question. On we go. Question 11. All right, just a heads up. I'm going to get a mouthful of tea. This is like, this is the question I have um, most been ranty about. Strap in. I'm looking at the clock. We still have time. We could go places with this question. Just be ready. Mouthful of tea first. Oh, man. How seriously should I take complaints about my fantasy story being unrealistic because of a choice a character made? Okay. Here's a thing. Sometimes, some people, when commenting on story, whether they're giving feedback or leaving reviews, they're going to use the word unrealistic. Sometimes they're using unrealistic and they don't mean realism. Sometimes they mean relatable. And those are two concepts, realism and relatability, that are kind of related. And unfortunately, we use them as synonyms, but they are very much different things. So I want to answer both. I want to separate both of those things and then bring it back to this question. Realism is the concept that whatever you're talking about, whatever you've made, the spaceship, the, the, the romantic lead, the, the car, the weather, the trees, the building, the this, the that, the stuff, the things, the feelings a character has, um, whatever you've created, you've given the reader the impression that they could close their eyes reach their hand out and experience it, that they could walk out their door and encounter it in the world. It feels as though they can imagine it, sense it, describe it, develop it, understand it in that visceral way. We can understand that I'm touching something and looking at something and lights hitting my eyeball and all that stuff. That's realism. It feels, and we use the word realistic to describe it, that is a process of quality 
of description, not necessarily quantity of adjectives. I can describe a thing in, in two adjectives that you might describe in 10, and we're both very effective in getting the, getting the idea across. It's about quality, not quantity. That's realism. That's, that's a whole thing having to do with the craft and the skill of your writing. Sometimes, though, when we use the word unrealistic or realism, we're not talking about the, how well you described the spaceship or the texture of grandpa's favorite chair. Sometimes we're talking about relatable, and that's especially true for concepts, stuff that isn't physically material in the world, like love or the feeling of rejection or the feeling of anxiety before somebody has to go do a big scary thing. That relatability is also a function of your craft. How well you get that feeling across is not necessarily accomplished in the maximum number of words, nor the minimum number of words. What you just want to get across is this feeling. Put words to it and describe it in a way that the reader will sit there and go, yeah, that feel, you, you've described the feeling I feel. However, that's done, whatever that might be, or you've described this experience, or you've described this action, or you've described this event occurring in a way that not only can I understand the words you have said because it, it puts an image in my head, it seems that it would be visualized or understood like that's how it works in my world. If we're, if we're going to speak casually about it, yeah, you've described the act of a car crash in a way I can not only visualize as just the concept of car striking car, but it mirrors or matches my understanding of car crashing. What it must feel like, the concussive force, the sound, the texture, the feeling, all those bits. I can relate to that sense. I have maybe not direct experience, but I'm in the ballpark. Sometimes we mean realistic. Sometimes we mean relatable. When a reader complains about something. Now we're going to add extra layers to it. Sometimes when a reader complains about something, they're talking about it because it is underdeveloped. It is underwritten. It is poorly described. So it is neither realistic nor relatable because they can't entirely get a picture of it in their head. Other times, and when that's the case, when you have failed to describe it for a reader, you have failed you, you goofed, you fucked up, whatever you want to call it. This is your opportunity to do better, to go try again, to write it again, to fix it. It happens. It's not the end of the world. That's why we have other drafts. That's why we solicit feedback so that we can learn how to improve our craft and get better by learning how to do a thing. It's fine. Not the end of the world. When they complain about it that way, it's because you've underwritten it. And you're going to know that because you need more than just the complaint of like, it's unrealistic. I don't like it. Great. Good for you. Give me more detail. I'm asking for clarification. Back up your statement. Give me some idea. What are you talking about? Actionable feedback makes a difference here as opposed to just somebody complaining on the internet. If you've underwritten it, you can fix it. If, however, the reader is complaining because the decision that you have the character making or that the, the thing you have written is different than how they would write it or produce it if they were writing, that's shit you can just skip. Because basically what they're saying is, if I were the author, I would do it differently. Well, you know what? Their chief buddy, pal, slugger, ace, you can write your own story and you can have it go however way you want. 
There is a huge difference, though, between you have failed to describe a thing and failed to make something relatable, meaning I can understand it as a reader. I get why they've done this thing or why you've said this thing this way. If you have failed to do that, no amount of, of, of after-the-fact explanation or you just got to roll with me hand-waving is going to make that okay. You have a responsibility to make the choices clear because what the reader is trying to do is say, if I were in this story, I would do what that character did based on what I know, based on what the character knows relative at the time. That's what the reader's trying to do. When you screw that up, when you fail to put to craft the story in such a way that you put the reader in that position, they cannot relate to what you are writing no matter what it is. Now, again, hang on. If you're writing for kids, this is a non-factor. If you're writing like children's picture books, if you're writing early, early readers where, you know, see dick run, run dick run, that's this is not what we're talking about. We're looking at you know, at least reader, middle grade, young adult, new adult, adult, the upper line of readership, right? If you have failed to do more than just say, this happened, this happened, that happened, this person said, that person said, if you have not gone past that, you are going to hear this a lot. And the two things that tells me is one, you need to work on how you write. And two, you're misunderstanding what it is to write. You're not putting, you're not giving the reader a chance to put themselves in the position of the character. You're not giving the reader enough material to feel as though the story is happening, you know, 360 degrees IMAX all around them, which is what the reader's looking to do. So how seriously should you take the complaint that your character made an unrealistic choice? If the reader's just complaining that they disagree with the choice, but they understood it, fuck it, kick it away, doesn't matter. If they're saying they the choice is unrealistic because you have failed to explain why it's the only option or why it's the option the character has to do or out of all the choices the character has considered, this is the one they're taking. If you have failed to develop the structure, if you have failed to develop the story to make that choice the obvious one, be it for emotional or narrative reasons or something else, if you if you screwed that up, yeah, you should take that seriously and you should do something about your writing. That's how you answer that question. A little bit more detailed than I thought. Not as ranty as I thought. I wonder if I got a rant coming for the next question. Who knows? Let's find out. Oh my God, here comes the rant. Question number 12. What advice would you give to people who keep throwing out random ideas and then ask, does this work? When all it seems they want is people's approval to write. Oh boy, howdy, here we go. Mouthful of tea. Oh God. Mm. Okay, here we are. Um, people in writing spaces who constantly seek for approval, I'd like to speak to you first. So if you're the person in a writing group, a Facebook group, a Discord community, anywhere, if you're somebody who's always asking, "Hey, is this a good idea? Is this is this is this good? Is this right? I'm going to I'm going to move in so you can really see me here, okay?" If you are doing that and only that, or the vast majority of what you're doing is that, and maybe when you're not doing that, you're posting some fun memes and you're just kind of hanging out. 
You need to know that you are wasting your time and the time of everyone you interact with because you will not write. You will not finish. You will not get started. You will not get to where you say it's important for you to be. Because if you are forever asking for permission, but not actually doing anything, why are you in this space? Why are you doing this thing? You are jerking everybody around. It's obnoxious. Stop it. Because writing, creating this art, doing this stuff, it's not about approval seeking. Because what that tells me, what that screams to me in big giant neon letters is, oh my God, I only want to do this if there's a very low risk for me with maximum reward and very easy effort. And I don't have a lot of confidence in what I'm doing, so I'm trying to make sure everything's okay so I have the easiest path possible from where I am to where I want to be. And hey, buddy, it doesn't work that way. It's never going to work that way. You're in the wrong space. If if that's really what you want to do, I love you, but I'd like you to find a different creative outlet. Try like something physically productive where you'll see the benefit of your work, like knitting or something. Because when we sit down to write, when we have this story to tell, it's not about getting approval first. It's about producing the thing we want to produce and then asking for help to make it better along the way. But we have to have some kind of innate, in our marrow, in our DNA level confidence that we're at least good enough to try because, fun fact, you're good enough to try. This is a big thing. This is a really important thing. And I need you to understand that the longer you swim in the waters of, is this okay? I don't want to make a mistake. Is this all right? Is this good? Is this work? Rather than turning it into, hey, I wrote these couple pages. I don't know if this is any good. I'm at least making an effort. Until you make that transition and stop just throwing bullshit out there with no risk because you're just talking on the internet and there's no risk involved. The minute you commit to something, the minute you give a shit, the minute you try, that's where things get interesting. That's where people care. That's where you stop wasting time and you start finding out. The problem here, the issue here is that you have to stop asking for approval because we're not in the approval business. We're in the not fucking around business of making our art and putting our stories out in the world because we believe that there is room at the table for our story and there's room for us to have a voice and we cannot wait to use that voice. So we do that. And the, the help we ask, the is this okay, does this work, is not a question of did I perform this task correctly? Did I write a scene that does the thing I'm trying to accomplish? That's, that's constructive. That's feedback. That's based on the work you did. It doesn't sit in this abstract space of one day when I sit down to write, I'd like to have this experience. No, fuck that. We're not in the abstract game. You want to hang out in the abstract game, there's like plenty of tech bros who can circle around with AI things who will tell you to up your productivity by 10x and other variables because that's just some bullshit faffing around. You deserve better. We all deserve better. Stop wasting our time. Just write it down. Let it be messy. Let it be bad. It's okay if you suck at this. The goal isn't just to be like, I suck, this is terrible. The goal is, I suck, but I can get better at this. 
I can do more if I just keep going, if I get some support, if I, instead of asking of, can I please have permission to tell my story? And instead ask, hey, I want to do this. How, what are my best tools? What's my best way to go? Who do I reach out for help? What do I need to know? What should I know in advance? Not, is it okay if I do it? It's, fuck it, I'm going to try. And I'm going to scab my knees and stub my toes and get dirty and messy along the way. But nothing's stopping me unless I choose to stop. And I'm going to make a million mistakes, but I'm going to get better as I go because I'm going, not because I'm waiting first. So the people who throw out random ideas, I'm going to tell you what my grandparents used to tell me when I was paralyzed with the anxiety that I couldn't decide between watching Murder, She Wrote or Matlock, or I couldn't decide if I wanted a turkey sandwich or a roast beef sandwich because I was afraid that I was picking a thing that would make somebody else upset. They would look at me dead in the face and go, shit or get off the pot. Because there aren't wrong choices here. There are just opportunities to either get what you want and move closer to your goal or get better at what you want and eventually get to your goal. You can't fuck this up. It's just a sandwich at lunchtime. You can mess up your draft. You can mess up your writing. Let it be messy so that you can get better at it later. That is what I would tell them. (sighs) that was my rant. I cathartically got that out. Awesome. Let's go hit that 13th question, though. Question 13, our final question for the evening. I never finished a draft in 2022. Okay. How How can I do better in 2023? Well, I mean, the obvious question, the obvious answer is finish a draft. But Instead of only measuring your progress in terms of the fact that I either finished or I didn't, instead of letting that be your only criteria, maybe consider that there's all these other little steps along the way. Did you get better at anything? I mean, I understand that you didn't finish, but along the way, did you, did you get better? Did you start writing better dialogue? Did you figure out how to write an action beat? Did you write a, a neater scene? Did you make fewer passive voice errors? Did you head hop less? Like, can we look at the progress you made, please? Rather than just hold yourself to some arbitrary distance standard and say, well, I didn't finish, so it sucks. That's fine. You didn't have to finish. If you're using finishing a draft as your own benchmark, cool, okay. How can you get better at finishing? How far are you away from finishing? Is this a matter of like, I'm scared to write my last chapter? Or is this a matter of like, I didn't write enough? Because the answers, the the ways to handle that are two very different things. If it's a matter of, I need to be more serious about my writing is a very broad topic. You got to get more concrete about it. Yes, you need to be more serious about your writing. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean we have to take a more rigorous look at your writing schedule? Or does that mean like you have to stop fucking around trying to write the perfect scene 11 times? Those are two different things we handle in two different ways. Doing better at finishing a draft, let's assume that was just your question. How far away are you from finished? How much work do you have to do? How can we turn that amount of work into something actionable? Not in as quick a time as possible, but just actionable. If it's a matter of, I have 10 chapters left. Okay. How many steps can we break each chapter into? You know, not so much that every chapter has to be the same size. We talked about that way back at the beginning. Chapters don't have specific set sizes. But if we looked at each of these 10 chapters and we figure out what has to happen in them, 
what would it take for you to get a third of the way, a quarter of the way, half of the way? What would it take for you to write a whole chapter? Could you just do that? I know there's nine other chapters left. I know there's a ton of other shit to do. I'm just asking you to look right here in front of you and look at this one step. Can you just do that? Because if you can do that, you're already ahead of where you were in 2022 and it's 2023 now. Turn your big abstract bullshit into concrete, straightforward things. It will make a difference. So figure out what it would take for you to finish. Not just, I have to write my book. Okay, great. That's vague and you're never going to do it with that focus. What do you have to write? How many words? How many chapters? How many scenes? I have to figure out my arc. Okay, how far are you in your arc? Let's talk it through. Is this a matter of you need accountability? Is this a matter of I just need to sit down and do it? Okay, why aren't you sitting down and doing it? Not because I want you to lose half the year to staring at your navel trying to figure out the answer, but I want you to at least think about, well, I know where I am and I know where I want to be. How do I get there? And then I want you to ask for help because... I can guarantee you one of the problems you had was that you didn't ask for enough help and the help you got maybe wasn't the help you always needed. Maybe you needed more. Maybe you needed different. Maybe you needed bigger. And if you're really looking for that help, go get it. It's not going to know you need it until you do something. But holding yourself to the big, vague goal of just, in 2023, I'm going to publish a book. No, you're not. Not like that, you're not. You can try, you will burn out, and then we'll be talking like two months later about how do I pick myself up after I fail my resolution. That's because resolutions are bullshit. We're going to talk about that next week, but it's it's the wrong approach. Make it a smaller step. Make it a, not necessarily a simpler step. I mean, you can always break it down to, I have to write more words, but break it into a simple step. Break it into a small concrete thing. I have nine chapters left. In my next chapter, I have to write the scene with the car chase and then I have to get them to the house. Okay. Just write that. Just do that. And then, well, what's next now that they're in the house, they have to have the heart to heart conversation. Great. Just write that. Turn your big vague thing of, I have to write my rest of my book, turn it into small steps, please, please. Oh, please. Oh, please turn it into small steps and then do them. And it will make a tremendous difference. That's how you do better doesn't matter what year it is, doesn't matter what season it is, doesn't matter how far you were, it matters where you're going and how you're going to get there. doesn't even matter when you get there, just that you're going because movement towards your goal is a hell of a lot better than standing still wishing you were moving towards your goal. And the moving is under your power. You have that ability to sit down and do it. And if you need help, get help. Help exists. I'm literally sitting here. I can help you. I'd be happy to help you. There are loads of resources that can help you. You don't just have to Google and take the first two results. I mean, you can, but you don't have to. You can ask more detailed questions. Look at the questions we had tonight. They were action-packed with detail. Go for it. Take a risk. Appear foolish. Appear stupid. Be willing to learn. And it'll make a difference. That's how you can do better in 2023. But you got to figure out where you want to go. And then you got to figure out how you're going to, not so much the exact route you're going to go, but figure out how far away you are. And then figure out what you can do to be a little bit closer. And then a little bit closer. And then a little bit closer. Not like miles away. Not like, what can I do tonight to make like big jumps? Nothing. Take a nap. Have a Coke. 
What can you take a step with? How can we move forward a little? That's all it takes. A lot of littles add up, and that's what you got to focus on. That's how you do better in 2023. Love that question. Love that answer. I love talking about how you can just do that because there are so many people, especially at the end of a year, there are so many people who sit there and look backwards more than they look forwards and feel absolutely sunk. Like, I didn't get any shit done. This sucks. It didn't suck. You're just looking at it the wrong way. You got a lot done. Maybe it wasn't as much as you hoped. Maybe it wasn't as much as you wanted. Maybe loads of other things happened in your control, out of your control, whatever. But you can always keep going if you want to keep going. You don't have to just stay stuck. It can be comfortable in that uncomfort or discomfort to be stuck. We get used to being stuck, so it becomes our status quo, and we're afraid to change the status quo. Hi, I'm in therapy. I get it. But you don't have to stay that way if you're willing to take tiny steps over and over and over again instead of big giant ones. Because big giant ones sound flashy and they get us pats on the head, but it's the small steps by which we accomplish. So small steps, please. What a great question. Are there any others before we get out of here? Else we will go to the outro. Questions, issues, etc. Anything? Anybody? Cool? Yes? No? It was wonderful to see all of you. There were oodles of you, and it made me, it was, I was awesome. It was great. Shall we get out of here? Shall we do that sweet, sweet outro? Let's do the outro. I do want to point out while the outro music cues up, next week, Next week is December the 21st. Next week is the last chat of 2022. I am taking off like two-ish, two and a half, maybe even three weeks from like the 28th, the 4th. Definitely those two weeks off, maybe the week after off, and we'll be back. Stay tuned to the newsletter. Uh, go to the website, johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. You'll get more details on that. Um, but I'm taking some time off at the end of the year. Next week, December 21st, is the last chat of 2022 um, because the holidays and stress and stuff, it'll be good. Just Let's just roll with that, all right? Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. This was amazing. I loved those questions. It was so great to see all of you. Thank you so much for your kind tips, your kind subscriptions. Thank you for being constantly ever supportive. Thanks for listening to me, hearing me, chatting with me, talking to me, sharing your lives with me. It means genuinely the world and everything to me. Um, if you have any questions anytime, you can always ask them. You know that. Uh, I will see you next week, the 21st at 7 p.m. right here on Twitch and YouTube. Uh, thanks. Thanks, everybody. All power to all people. Take care of yourselves. Be good to yourselves. And I will talk to you very, very soon. See ya!